In my devotions this morning, I was reading through the book of Psalms, chapter 138. It says, I will give you thanks with all my heart. I will sing your praise before the heavenly beings. I will bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your constant love and truth. You've exalted your name and your promises above everything else. And this is what I love to read. And on the day I called, you answered me. Isn't that amazing? Right? The the Lord of lords who exalts his will and his promises above everything else. Yet on the day that I call, he still answers. David says, following, you increased strength within me. Some of you may need that increase of strength in your life today. Can I assure you that as you call on the Lord, he will answer? Amen? As you call on the Lord, sing praises to his name, proclaim his promises, his truth in your life. As you call to him, he will answer and he will increase your strength. Jesus, we call upon you and we believe that salvation is through you and you alone. We sing this collectively together, Lord, in our hearts, would you convict us of this truth once again? That as we draw close to you, as we draw close to your word this morning, as we call upon you, may we with assurance and faith know that you hear and that you respond and that you answer and you give the assurance that you will strengthen us this morning. We thank you for that. Lord, I pray your blessing over Nathan today as he shares your word. I pray favor over the words that you have placed in his heart. And as he speaks them, would your conviction come forth in our lives, Holy Spirit, because of the work that you're doing in this place, in your name. And everybody said, amen, amen. God bless you. You may take a seat. And Nathan, come on up. As uh, we continue on in our series of our obedience and our journey through the book of Joshua, Uh, isn't it so wonderful to do so maskless? Oh my goodness. Like to stand up here and to hear your voices and not just like muffled voices behind the cloths. It's so nice to hear. And uh, excited to have you part of the team, part of the family. And uh, a few of you, we've been using the language the last couple of weeks about with Nathan Bolt uh, moving on, the new Nathan. And many of you were using the language, the new Nathan. And unbeknownst to you, you were right, the new Nathan. So we're glad you're here. We love you, buddy. God bless you. Thanks so much, Gav. Wow, guys, what a welcoming. Uh, so yes, uh, welcome everyone. Thank you so much for showing up to chapel this morning. Um, this is really cool because grad chapel was one of the few experiences in my first year I was really looking forward to. And I didn't know whether or not I'd have the, the privilege and the honor to do so, uh, but I do. And so Gav, Cam, thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of this. This is uh, such an honor for me. Um, All right, guys, so I've met most of you. If I haven't met you, my name is Nathan, um, and uh, I see it uh, as quite a privilege that I do get to speak to you guys this morning. So here's a little bit of information about me if you do not know me. I am Nathan, obviously, and I'm in my fourth year here at Summit. Uh, Man, the time goes by quick. Uh, Yeah, I mean, that's the plan. So, uh, and then I'm also in the pastoral theology program. And I am now, I guess the cat's out of the bag. I'm coming on staff here at Summit. Um, Yeah, I I never, ever would have expected that. uh, But I mean, God's funny how he kind of works everything out. Uh, And 
I also loved my time at Summit here. And so uh, one of these like amazing experiences that I get to look back on was actually in the residency here in the Holdcroft. So for you guys that are in the Holdcroft, I don't know how your guys' experience has been so far this year, but I, a couple of years ago, had like the best experience. So there was this one night that um, the guys and I, we all went to McDonald's because this is what you do, right? I mean, you want to spend more money than you really should. You go out at dawns. You have class in the morning at 8 a.m. So it's probably not the best idea, but anyways, we go out. And so uh, when we come back, there was this, uh, <laughs> my roommate was sleeping. And so uh, as my roommate was sleeping, one of my friends begins to talk and he, and he says, hey, dude, I think we should baptize your roommate. So for, for those of you who know what baptism is, it's, a, it's, a, it's an immersion in water. Uh, and so anyways, and, and he baptized a few of us before too. So this, I mean, this, we were just getting back at him a little bit. Uh, but anyways, so um, everyone was really scared to do this. So anyways, I was like, it's my roommate. I'll do it. So anyways, we go into the bathroom and my friend Justice, yeah, Justice, you're here today. He's in the building. Um, he is actually, uh, he's got a, like a really big hydro flask. You guys know those like big hydro flasks, right? Like, like they're probably like $80. I don't even know how much water they hold, but a lot of water. Yeah, I didn't really even empty out that much. So anyways, we, I empty out a little bit, but I, I go into our room and it's pitch dark. And so then, you know, we're like, okay, in the, Father, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, uh, we immerse you. So anyways, I proceed to dump all this water on my roommate. And, uh, but I didn't under, I, I was just going for like a little sprinkle kind of thing. But a lot came out very quickly to the point where it all started coming off the bed. And, uh, and so I, I got pretty nervous and my roommate got pretty mad. And so then Justice and I, we run to the lounges in the residence and we probably wait for like an hour. I would say, yeah, because we're like, we just want him to go to bed. Hopefully we can deal with this later. Uh, but anyways, so um, we come back in the bathroom and we're like quietly brushing our teeth. And uh, the door begins to open. It creaks open and my roommate's there in his boxers. And he just gives me this like, this crazy look. And he's like, you are creating a bad culture. And I was like, I was kind of taken off guard because I was like, really, dude? Like, that's what you're going to say? I just, I just dumped water on you? And I'm creating a bad culture. Not like that's what you have to say to me. But, but anyways, what I love about that story is that it actually, like, I love what he said to me. What, you know, like, you're creating a bad culture. And so anyways, it began to, like, make me think, like, what kind of culture am I creating? See, I think in the world right now, we've definitely seen how important leadership is. Um, and it, I'm, I'm sure it actually very hits close to home for a lot of our hearts. I mean, we see the Ukraine. We see like the, the, the crazy decisions by leaders when their hearts are not checked. And we see the effects and the devastation that it can bring. And I'm sure actually in all of our lives too, we've actually experienced some, some hurt by leaders. We've experienced some things, some decisions that they've made that has really hurt us, that has really done something to us. And so anyways, it's with like a soft heart, I want to open up the text this morning in Joshua because see guys, leadership is important. And, and, and we can't abuse leadership. It's actually something, it's a very high call. And, and so you are, and, and there's, two kinds of, um, there's two kinds of leadership. There's, there's leadership that is uh, out to build their own kingdom and, and use power and authority and lord it over people. And then there's actually a different kind of leadership. And so anyways, it's with that, I would like to invite you guys into the text today. So our teaching text today is Joshua chapter 9, verses 1 to 5. So for those of you who are familiar uh, with Joshua, 
Um, it is a Bible, or it is a Bible. Yes, it is a Bible. It's a book in the Bible. And, uh, and, and here, Joshua is, uh, the Israelites have gone on quite a journey. They've, um, they've experienced some really cool moments where God moved in their life. And so now it comes to this point where a lot of the nations surrounding them are actually beginning to, to, to clue in that it's not just Joshua and the Israelites, but it's actually God doing something. People that don't even know God are beginning to realize that God is actually doing something. And so anyways, I invite you into the text with me. So chapter nine, verse one, it says, now when all the kings of the west of the Jordan heard about these things, the kings in the hill country, in the western foothills, and the entire coast of the Mediterranean Sea, um, they came together to wage war against Joshua and Israel. However, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended. They put worn and patched, they worn out sandals on their feet and they wore old clothes. Their bread and their food was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal and they told them, um, we have come from a distant country and you should make a treaty with us. And so see the Israelites say back to these, these people, uh, well, but perhaps you live near us and how can we make a treaty with you? To which uh, the leader of Israel says back, we are your servants. Or, sorry, they said to Joshua, we are your servants. But Joshua asked, who are you and where do you come from? And they answered, your servants have come from a very distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard reports of him, all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan. And our elders and all those living in the country said to us, take provisions for your journey, go meet them and say to them, we are your servants and make a treaty with us. This bread of ours was warm when we packed it on the day when we left to come see you, but now we see how dry and moldy it is. And these one skins that were once new are now cracked and our clothes and sandals are worn out by the very long journey. And it continues to say, the Israelites sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of Yahweh, the Lord. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them and to let them live and the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. Would you please pray with me? Jesus, we welcome you here this morning. And we pray in that in your mercy and in your grace that we would be able to see you in this text. We pray that you would open up our minds and our hearts to see what it really says. And we pray that you would help us experience the truth that lies within it. In your name, amen. All right, so here's kind of the scenario so far. Um, Joshua and the Israelites have had quite the journey up to this point. Uh, and, and, and just before this whole scenario, they just actually were dealing with, this, with, with sin. And so they just renewed their covenant and their uh, relationship with God. And they were like, look, we're going to follow you again. We're, gonna, we're not going to like cheat on you, God. We're actually going to be faithful to you. And uh, pretty quickly, as you guys saw, that is not the case. That's not what happens. Uh, instead of attempting... Um, to, to follow God here, these Israelites actually begin to turn away from God in, in, a, in a way. So see, they make a covenant. So a covenant's kind of a, it's a big word, but what it really means is it's like, it's, it's stronger than a promise. It's like, an, it's like an oath. It's something you don't break. And, and when a covenant is broken, there's actually ramifications from that. There's actually issues that come from that. And so see, when the Israelites choose to bypass uh, seeking God when they were making this decision, they were making it very plain clear to God that they were choosing to place their trust more in their human senses, capabilities, and discernment um, instead of looking to God for his. And it, what's crazy is that up till this point, the only reason why the Israelites got to where they were was because of God, which is crazy. So it's like you are now abandoning 
all, your, your recipe for success, the reason why you've gotten to where you are today, you've abandoned it, which is just crazy to me. So anyways, we see that Joshua makes the covenant. And, uh, and, and this, is, this covenant actually specifically, it's interesting because it's not just a promise that Joshua made. It wasn't just the Israelites saying, yeah, we won't like mess with any, we won't mess with you, we'll like protect you. Uh, it was actually like the Hebrew, the original language, which is in the Hebrew, would actually suggest that this oath um, meant that it would be ratified in the name of Yahweh, so you, in the name of God. So you are making a decision because in God's name, but you didn't even ask him about it. So it's pretty crazy. They're, they're willing to say, invite God into a decision that he himself wasn't even invited into. So see, now this leaves them with a decision. They either break the instructions that they were initially given when they went into the land of Canaan, or else they break the covenant that they ratified with God. And if they were to break this covenant with God that they made with the Gibeonites, this other nation, it would have actually brought divine wrath. Because you brought God into it and you broke it, now you were actually going to bring God's wrath on you. So they're in a predicament, guys. This is a complete mess. This is a mess. And so anyways, it gets me to start asking these questions like, well, like, why? Why did you do this? Like, Joshua, why did you do this, man? Like, you know better. You were Moses' right-hand man. You knew what you should do and what you should not do. Like, how did you get here? And so um, Joshua was a military um, leader. He was, he was a general for Moses, the leader that came before him. And so he got to see all these amazing moments with God. Um, and he got to see Moses make a lot of good decisions and make a lot of bad decisions. But yet, and then, and then anyway, the beginning of Joshua's journey was actually really, really good. He, he obeyed what God told him to do. But now we get to this point where he's starting to deviate. And so this makes me ask another question, like why? Like why would Joshua begin to do that? And what is the problem here? What is the real problem? So here's my um, diagnosis from this a little bit. But how do we, here's, yeah. How do we go from faithfully following God and we enter into compromise. Because this is what we've seen happen here today. See, and I love um, Mark Hawks's uh, explanation of this because this, he would suggest this would be a gradual process. See, it's, it's gradual and it's internal. See, it starts off as an idea. See, this could have begun as Joshua just thinking, man, I'm actually a pretty good leader. I'm pretty good. I, I know what I'm doing. We're like, we're defeating all these nations. We're winning all these wars. Like, I, I've got this. This is, this is good. And you begin to become overconfident. And so eventually this could become something, uh, this idea can actually change how we see the situation. Um, because what this idea can do is it begins to twist Joshua's ability to interpret what's really happening. See, I think Joshua could start to believe that he was actually the one who was responsible for the success of the nation instead of God being the success of the nation. So this begins to change our hearts. And so uh, when it changes our hearts, it causes us to misinterpret the situation. Uh, and so I have, I, I have an example. So for those of you who know, my dad is this small town guy from Saskatchewan and he loves farming. I don't know, I, I'm, I, I don't know how this came from a farmer. I'm nothing close to a farmer. Don't like it. I like green, but I don't like plants. Like so. Um, anyways, I find it very interesting when I listen to my dad talk about farming because so ten years ago he started farming and he did really well. He made like all this money from farming. 
He was killing it. All these crops were growing. It was awesome. He was like buying new machinery and stuff. And then the past few years, he's been humbled quit. Um, he does not have as much money as he once did. And, and this is the crazy thing I find with farming. is like you can do all the right things. Right? We can do all the right things. Farmers, they can, they, there's, there's factors that they can control. But in the end, they really have to rely on God to actually like make it all worthwhile, to actually bring life and transformation to, from this little seed into a plant. See, because you can't go around running around on fields and, and watering all the crops. You just can't do that. You can't build a massive greenhouse over all these like farmlands. You can't do it. You, you can't. There are factors that you actually have to just let God take care of. And so see, I think similarly as pastors and Christian leaders, and I would say leaders in general, we can fall into this place um, that we believe that we are actually a little bit more instrumental in the success of the things we're doing. And I think, I think we, we might be wrong there. See, here's my connection. I, I think we can allow compromise into our hearts very easily. And slowly as we let it into our hearts, it can change us from the inside out. See, as leaders of churches and Christian organizations, we can sometimes allow the success we experience to change the posture of our hearts. We begin to believe that because of our ability to plan a youth ministry night, a retreat, how we can play music, that that actually changes people's hearts. See, th those are very dangerous thoughts to let in your mind. See, because when we do that, we begin, it begins to distort the reality of the situation. We begin to believe that we're a little bit more significant in the whole situation than I believe we really are. See, unfortunately, we can begin to remove God away from the equation, and that's a very scary place to find ourselves. See, I, I think Joshua was a really good leader, and I think there's a lot to learn from his life. And I think if we're all being honest, we, we can look back at moments in our lives, and we can see leaders that made, they made good decisions than leaders that have made really bad decisions. It's not hard. Even as I say leaders to you, I'm sure there's leaders popping up in your head. And, as, and, and because of that, I, I actually want to, instead of picking Joshua apart, I would much rather look to what we should do. So in order to do that, I would like to suggest this, that instead of looking to just good leaders, we should actually look to the great king. So see, Instead of going through what we shouldn't with Joshua, I would like to explore what we should do with Jesus and why we should look at him as our perfect example. So to explore this, I would like to invite you into the, uh, the Gospel of Matthew. So here in this book, we find Matthew building us an image, and it, not just a regular image, but actually as Jesus as the eternal king. This is a radical, radical uh, claim. And throughout it, there are moments that reveals what kind of leadership Jesus actually exemplifies. So this is my first reason that we should look to Jesus as our example. Because number one, he can resist temptation. See, Jesus shows that he is the king and we can actually put our trust in him because he will remain faithful even when we don't. See, there is this, there's, this one, um, there's this one place in Matthew where, he, expl er, where he, he writes about Jesus being led into the wilderness. And so uh, in chapter, Matthew chapter 4, he shows us that Jesus is the one who can wander the wilderness and successfully fight off the temptation. So Jesus fasts, and he experiences his body being pushed to the physically weakest point. This was 40 days without food um, in the wilderness. And so uh, in, this, in this scripture would have actually really spoken to Matthew's audience. 
because see, Matthew's, Matthew's audience was primarily Jewish. And so because they were primarily Jewish, they would have heard this story and immediately their minds would have been brought into the wilderness where Joshua and Moses both were. See, Matthew's trying to tell his Jewish listeners a very specific thing, that Jesus is greater than the leaders who came before him. And he's saying that Jesus is better than the leaders that'll come after. Jesus is the greatest leader. And so the king of kings is faithful because even when he was physically weakest in his most vulnerable place, Jesus still resists it. He still makes the right decision and we can trust in him because of that. The next reason I think that we should look at Jesus as our great example is because of this. Only he can expose our true motives and teach us how to posture our heart. So as Matthew continues to build this picture of Jesus as the eternal king, he begins to show us how Jesus will expose our motives. In Matthew 20, uh, verses 20 to 28, uh, Matthew writes, the mother of Zebedee's son came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, she asked him for a favor. What is it you want? He asked. And she said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus replies, you don't know what you are asking. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. This is James and John. They just like jump in there, which is kind of funny. But Jesus says to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom has been prepared by my father. When the 10 heard about this, they were indignant. And the two brothers, Jesus called, and the two brothers, Jesus called them together and said, you know that the leaders of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, he came, but, but he came to serve. He did, he did not come to be served, but he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, Matthew records Jesus telling his disciples that they are not to follow the examples of the people around them. The officials, the government, how they would lord power over these people and abuse people and hurt people and take from people. No, what Jesus is actually saying is, I want you to actually serve them. Instead of coveting the place beside me, I actually want you, like, that's not your place. You should be, in, like, you should be in front of me. It's crazy. Like, these are, this is James and John. James and John, for those of you um, who are not familiar with this, James and John were some of the closest people to Jesus. Like, these were his inner circle. I want you to think about that. Like, who are your, like, inner circle right now? You're two or three people. Two of these people were Jesus' closest friends. And even then, like, they're, they're just wanting to get close to him, and they just want to be beside him when he's on his throne. Right? And so, anyways, um, I just find this crazy. Like, John would even, like, he would call himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. The disciple whom Jesus loved. And the disciple whom Jesus loved completely misunderstands it. See, and, and I don't believe that we're all that different from James and John. See, I too can struggle. In my first year, if I'm being real, I had a really hard time celebrating my friends. See, if I, as long as I got similar opportunities, as long as I got to do the things too, I was happy, I could celebrate them, and I could have a clean heart. But if I wasn't to get same, the same opportunities as my friends, if they were to get things that I were not able to, I don't think I, like, I would say the right things, but I don't actually think that I would really mean them. See, so what this does is this shows us, like, our hearts and our intentions cannot always be bad, but our values and desires can be very twisted. See, deep down, I was just like James and John. I wanted to reach people, but I wanted to do it. I wanted to do it because I cared about whether or not 
if I'm being honest, I was significant or not. See, I, I, uh, I believe that as we follow Jesus and as we begin to do ministry and we begin to go out into the world, one of the temptations is, is we can begin to allow the allure of, of significance to drive us in ministry and to drive us to love people instead of the love of God, which is a very scary place to get to. Tim Keller actually comments on the heart. Tim Keller is a pastor and this really smart dude from New York. And he says this, the direction of the heart then controls everything our thinking, our feeling, decisions, and actions. What we love most, we find most reasonable, desirable, and doable. Whatever we cherish in our hearts most controls the whole person. No wonder Jesus is so concerned about our hearts. See, the direction of our hearts controls everything. We too can value the wrong things and hold on to the wrong things, even when we shouldn't. And if we don't, this can lead us down a very scary direction. As we're following Jesus and we look to him, we need him to expose our ideas and our hearts that we cling so closely to. See, we need Jesus to expose our hearts because there's far too much at stake. This text shows us that we can follow Jesus for years and completely miss the point of ministry altogether. Are we building his kingdom or are we building ours? See, in the next question I ask myself then is, am I using Jesus to become significant? Or am I trying to make him known and make him significant? There's a very big contrast, and we can't do both. Am I using Jesus to be significant? See, our unchecked desires can lead us to very scary places. And we need Jesus to expose our hearts. Because if we're all being honest, there's, there's some dirt in there. They're not as clean as we think they are. See, we need, Jesus to, we need to look to Jesus as our perfect example. Because only he can truly expose our hearts. And only he can put them in their proper place. Not only does Jesus show us that servanthood is ultimately better than significance, but he shows us um, actually how to overcome these misplaced desires in our hearts, which leads me to my third point. Jesus teaches us how to surrender. So see, Matthew has been very intentional up to this point, and he's been trying to build this image as Jesus as the king. Jesus shows us that the power of surrender is what actually can overcome these misplaced desires. So in Matthew, uh, towards the end of the gospel, he writes this. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and please keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. But yet, not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away from me, unless to be taken away unless I drink it, May your will be done. See, unlike Joshua, Jesus actually seeks God and he surrenders it all. Where Joshua makes a covenant and he makes an agreement that he shouldn't, Jesus actually doesn't. He renews a covenant. He makes a new covenant through his blood. See, Jesus is a far better Joshua. And I believe instead of just looking and picking apart Joshua, I, I actually would suggest this, that we should go and we should look towards Jesus as our example because he is so much greater. See, he teaches us how to surrender. Jesus knew what was before him and he knew the depths that it would bring him to. Jesus would ultimately die a criminal's death on a cross and be completely humiliated. 
Here on the cross, Jesus would settle humanity's debt by becoming sin. This concept is pretty crazy to me. See, every sin from the beginning of time, from the garden to the present moment where Jesus was alive to where we are right now until the end of time, Jesus took it all. He took all the sin. He took all the things. And then what he would actually do is he would become sin. And that's how he would defeat it. And only Jesus can do that. Jesus would take it all on and he would, he would become sin. And this is why when we actually read later on when Matthew's explaining, on the, uh, explaining or talking about Jesus on the cross, um, he captures this, this, what Jesus is saying. So in Matthew 27, verse 46, he says, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice and saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So this was the first time actually in the gospels that Jesus would refer to his father as God and not as his father. And it was because of this, it was because, Mark Hawks explains this really well, so I have a quote. God's presence has always been with him from the beginning. Matthew 27, 46 is the only time in the gospels that Jesus would use the formal word God as opposed to Abba or Father. He's expressing a great sense of estrangement. The son felt abandoned by his father and this loss was worse than life itself. See, even though Jesus was not abandoned while on the cross, he wouldn't, he wouldn't sense his father's presence when he was there because of all the weight and all the guilt of sin. And if we're being honest here today, you guys know how it feels when, when, when we do something wrong. There's something misplaced in our hearts. We know it. Like deep down in us, we know that we messed up. And it's like, imagine that feeling, but like, magnify that but I don't even know how much like it's insane so see this is what Jesus knew he was surrendering to Jesus did not come to be served but instead to serve Jesus would understand the way the cross is not easy but he would ultimately understand that it's very worth it he trusted his father and he would be given the strength to follow the way of surrender so thankfully even though we're not called to anything the same to the same degree and the same depth as Jesus we are invited to follow him down the way of the cross which is the way of surrender but the path of service and surrender ultimately begins in Gethsemane. So see, Jesus surrendered it all and he showed us um, there's a very different contrast about what surrender looks like and what it doesn't. See, what surrender does not look like is insincerity. What I would love to point out is that Jesus didn't like hide anything from his father. He's like, Father, I, I really don't wanna do this. I really don't wanna go the way of dying a criminal's death on a cross. I, like, I don't want this, but may your will be done. See, Jesus modeled honesty. Instead of skepticism, believing that God didn't have the best in mind for him, he actually modeled that we should trust our Father, that we can trust God to the point of going down some pretty crazy paths. Like Jesus, Jesus says, like, not my will, but yours. These are words of trust. And ultimately, Jesus didn't try to do this all on his own. He invited his Father into this. And Jesus knew that he would be given strength to make the right decision. See, as we look to Jesus as our perfect example, he shows us the power of surrender and he models it for us too. He shows us that the posture of surrender is the only way that we can really fight the compromise from entering into our hearts. So this is what we're gonna do. What, what I really love about this last scripture is like Jesus went to Gethsemane and it's a model, but it's also an invitation. See, Jesus invited all of his closest friends with him to pray and to seek God and to seek his father as he was about to make a pretty crazy decision. And what's really cool is Gethsemane, it actually means oil press. 
And so what this is supposed to tell us and show us is that this is the place where there is a crushing that happens. There's something that comes out of this decision. See, the garden is where the crushing happens, but it's also where beauty happens. There's something beautiful that happens in surrender. So I actually would like to invite you guys to stand up. And so this is the invitation to enter Gethsemane and to surrender what you've been holding on to. And some of you are at very different places in this room. Some of you are graduating. You're trying to figure out where to go next. Some of you are just trying to figure out what you're doing for a summer. Some of you are trying to figure out whether you should even come back to school next year. And some of you, you don't even know where you're at with God. To which I would like to say that's okay. See, we're all in our own different places. And Jesus invites us to this place of brutal honesty. He invites us into this place of total surrender. And he doesn't call us into places that he doesn't first go himself. So see, I would like you guys to hold out your hands right now, but keep them in a fist. So now I want you to close your eyes and I want you to think about this. What is the thing in your life that you feel like you cling on to most? The place that you don't want to share with anyone else. The place in your life that you, like it's just yours. And I want you just to think about that for a moment. Jesus understands how tough it is to actually begin to loosen the grip. He understands that. But I would like to suggest this. I think that as we look to how good Jesus is, and as we look towards the path that he chose, the path that he modeled, I believe it helps us see how beautiful he is. Culture is gonna tell you a lot of different things and what leadership is and what you should do and how you should make decisions. But ultimately, I believe that Jesus is the ultimate one who can show us how to make really good decisions and how to love people and how to live a transformed life. So as we go into this song, I want you to think about that. What have you built your life on? What are the places of your life that you hold away from God? Where are the places in your heart that you hold so tightly onto? And I would like to invite you into this. As you begin to see how beautiful Jesus is, maybe just start to loosen that grip a little bit. Worthy of all the praise.